All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Ratanamane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesis and Yavadi Paskajade Satarane. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Saganai Raganatham Vitam Stam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam. Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha. Panchakapatubascha keep us in the February 3rd, 2021, Hawaii over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 24, Chanting the Song, sung, Chanting the Song, Sung by Lord Shiva. Text 40. Artalingaya Nabase. Namontar Bahiratmane. Nama Punyaya Lokaya Amusmai Bhuri Varchase Arta Meaning Lingaya Revealing Nabase under the sky Namaha offering obeisances Antaha within Bahi and without Atmane Unto the self, Namaha, offering obeisances, Kunyaya, pious activities, Lokaya, for creation, Amusmai, beyond death. Buri Varchase, the Supreme Effulgence. Jula Prabhupada's translation. This is Lord Shiva speaking. My dear Lord, by expanding your transcendental vibrations, you reveal the actual meaning of everything. You are the all, you are the all-pervading sky within and without. And you are the ultimate goal of pious activities executed both within this material world and beyond it. I therefore offer my respectful obeisances again and again unto you. Srila Prabhupada's purport. Vedic evidence is called Shabda Brahma. 
There are many things which are beyond the perception of our imperfect senses, yet the authoritative evidence of sound vibration is perfect. The Vedas are known as Shabda Brahma because evidence taken from the Vedas constitutes the ultimate understanding. This is because Shabda Brahma, or the Vedas, represents the Supreme Personality of Godhead. However, the real essence of Shabda Brahma is the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. By vibrating this transcendental sound, the meaning of everything, both material and spiritual, is revealed. This Hare Krishna is non-different from the Personality of Godhead. The meaning of everything is received through the air, through sound vibration. The vibration may be material or spiritual, but without sound vibration, no one can understand the meaning of anything. In the Vedas, it is said, Antar sarvam vyapi narayana stita. Narayana is all-pervading, and he exists both within and without. This is also confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita, 1334. Yata prakashaya Kritsnam loka imam ravihi, kshetri kshetri tata krishnam, prakashyayati bharata. O son of bharata, as the sun alone illuminates all this universe, so do the living entity and the super soul illuminate the entire body by consciousness. In other words, the consciousness of both the soul and the super soul is all pervading. The limited consciousness of the living entity is pervading the entire material body. And the supreme consciousness of the Lord is pervading the entire universe. Because the soul is present within the body, consciousness pervades the entire body. Similarly, because the supreme soul or Krishna is present within this universe, everything is working in order. Maya, Dakshena, Prakriti, Suyate, This material nature is working under my direction, O son of Kunti, and it is producing all moving and unmoving beings. Lord Shiva is therefore praying to the personality of Godhead, to be kind to us, so that simply by chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, we can understand everything in both the material and spiritual worlds. The word amusmai is significant in this regard because it indicates the best target one can aim for after attaining the higher planetary systems. Those who are engaged in fruitive activities, karmis, attain the higher planetary systems as a result of their past activities. And the jnanis who seek unification or a monastic merging with the effulgence of the Supreme Lord, also attain their desired end, but in the ultimate issue, the devotees who desire to personally associate with the Lord are promoted to the Vaikuntha Lokas or Goloka Vrindavana. The Lord is, is described in Bhagavad Gita 10.12 as Pavitram Padamam, the Supreme Pure. This is also confirmed in this verse. Shukadeva Goswami has stated that the cowherd boys who played with Lord Krishna were not ordinary living entities. Only after accumulating many pious activities and various births does one get the opportunity to personally associate with the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Since only the pure can reach him, he is a supreme pure. So, it's interesting if we want to look at uh, Jiva Goswami's Commentary. No, it wasn't Jeeva Goswami. It was Vishnu Chakravati Thakur's commentary, where he's there offering obeisances to the Lord as the supreme sky uh, that is within and without, and within all, within which all sound vibrations take place. And uh, also, he's offering obeisances. He's saying Lord Shiva is offering obeisances because we have two namahas here. 
Punya Lokaya, uh, here where Prabhupada's translating as pious activities for creation, uh, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur was commenting that this means the Vaikuntha planets, the supreme Vaikuntha planets, the top, the Punyaya Lokaya, the top planet of the universe. And we can see that Srila Prabhupada, although he doesn't have that in his translation, he's putting that into his purport. All right, so there's two ways in which Lord Shiva is offering obeisances here to the Lord. He's offering obeisances to him as the uh, revealing sky, the meaning that's contained it within and without the sky that's within and without us, <laughs> inside and outside us. And then he's offering obeisances to the topmost planet that one can attain after death. And these two have some relationship, uh, which is why he's offering them together. So all of us would like to know what's going on. Yeah, we'd all like to know the meaning. Uh, Srila Prabhupada talks here about the meaning. Right? How does he put it? Um, without sound vibration, no one can know the meaning of anything. And how else does he say? Yes, by vibrating this transcendental sound, the meaning of everything, both material and spiritual, is revealed. So this is a big question for human beings. What does anything mean? What's the meaning? You know, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned here, but I was recently counseling a devotee who'd gone through a horrific uh, medical experience. And she was saying, you know, what does it mean? What's the meaning I can derive from this? And all of us are asking that kind of question. You know, does my life have any meaning? Does it have any value? Whether it's asking that about, you know, the little things in life or the big things in life. I want to make sure that my life has some meaning. I want to make sure that everything I do has some kind of meaning. It's, it's one of the primary needs of a human being, this need for meaning, for value, that things have to make some kind of sense, that we don't want to do things that are just completely useless. I mean, sometimes uh, one may want to relax by doing something that's, that's more or less useless, <laughs> just to kind of relax their mind. But in general, we don't want to do things that are useless. We want to do things that have meaning. Even if you say someone does something useless for relaxation, uh, you know, they're just sitting down in a chair outside and they're not doing anything useful. Or they're just playing some game. As the meaning is that they're relaxing. The meaning is that they're recharging. So that even that has some kind of meaning. Yes? Like sleep. But it's very difficult to understand what everything means. It, it's kind of mysterious, isn't it? What does everything mean? How do I know that my life has meaning? How do I know what the world means? What is its value? What is its purpose? So in the modern society, where talking about God and referencing scripture is seen as something more or less primitive, people try to find out meaning simply through ordinary projection animal simply through their senses and logic. And, you know, looking at the world and saying, well, it doesn't really have any meaning. It was just some, you know, exploding Big Bang that by circumstance happened to produce planets and happened to produce life. And the life happened to evolve into various, kind of, uh, various species. 
and there really isn't any other meaning other than self-preservation or replication of the species. But self-preservation for what? (laughs) And replication of the species for what? Uh, What is the purpose? And people are living lives that are basically stripped of meaning. You know, and then they're trying to find meaning in, you know, well, I, I smiled at my neighbor or I planted some flowers or something like that and therefore my life has meaning. But how are we going to understand what things mean? I, just by doing, you know, research work with our senses and our mind. And I, I've mentioned a number of times that in the doctoral level, I took a course on the philosophy of research. And it was the only thing I've studied that I would say was pure mental speculation. Uh, Prabhupada often talking about mentally, don't do mental speculation. and I frankly never quite knew what that meant. But when I took that course, I'm like, oh, that's what this means. So I used to mostly sit in the back row and and memorize Nirotamadastakura's songs during that class. I, I did get a chance to write a paper based totally on Shastra, and I did get a chance to make a presentation of Bhagavatam cosmology in that class, so I did some, some preaching in that class. But mostly it was just extremely boring and stupid because it was all speculating. You know, who are we... A lot of the questions that that's answered in the Sankhya philosophy, you know, who am I? What's my relationship to the body? What's the relationship between the bodily senses and the sense objects that I perceive? Are the sense objects something objective out in the real world, or are they a subjective perception that's only happening inside of me? And what is, the, what is the ultimate nature of matter? What is matter made of? What is life made of? What is their relationship? These very, very basic questions about meaning. And nobody had any, any answers. I mean, it was just wild guesswork. And, of course, each philosopher had his own wild guesswork. What was fascinating to me about... I mean, a number of things were fascinating to me about that class. The fact that so many people spent so much time doing mental speculation for no profit was fascinating. But also that we started the semester by explaining that all of the speculation was useless. So that was the beginning. It was uh, the, the, the first classes were about the futility uh, and the limitations of just what we call empirical knowledge or positivism. Or sometimes it's called modernism, but that's not a particular time period. So depending on where you are in the world, it may be called empirical studies or it may be called positivism or it may become, be, um, be called modernism. And then they have post-positivism and post-modernism and so forth. But what is the limits? And the limit, the, the main limit, I mean, there are many, but one of the main limits is that you can never say what's true. That by trying to figure out meaning through these ways, you never come to a point where you're going to say, oh, now I know what's true. All you can say is, so far, we can say that this is not false. You you can't. The way the method is, it precludes any possibility of ever being able to say, this is true. 
I mean, other things were that there's an infinite number of explanations for any set of data, for any set of observations. An infinite number of explanations. How do you know if there's an infinite number? You can't tell the probability of your explanation being true because you don't even know the whole set. I mean, like, let's say you don't know how many, you know, pigeons are in the world and you don't have any idea and you study 500 pigeons. If you don't know the total amount of pigeons, you don't know what percentage of the pigeon population you've studied. You know, if you've only studied a hundredth of a percent, then your study doesn't mean as much as if you studied you know, 70%. So we, one never knows because one doesn't know the total number. So one never knows uh, whether or not one's theory uh, is probably, you know, has a greater chance of being not false. It, it's, it's just a mess. It's like people who are, you know, deaf and dumb, like, like little Helen Keller before Annie Sullivan came, and, you know, she couldn't communicate with the world. She couldn't understand the world. She couldn't understand the meaning of the world. She had to have, I was talking this morning with my daughter about the deaf. Uh, one devotee that I'm working with also has a deaf daughter. You know, if someone like Helen Keller, who's both deaf and blind, if, they, if she doesn't have an interpreter like Annie Sullivan to come and explain the world to her, there's very little she's going to be able to find out by touch and smell and taste. It's going to be very limited. And we're similarly restricted. We may not think that way. We may think, well, I can see and I can hear. But our senses are so limited that even the greatest philosophers and the greatest scientists are simply running around in circles like some you know, animal chasing their tail. And whatever, whatever theories they come up with about meaning, somebody supersedes them with another theory and another theory, and somebody comes and finds out what's wrong with their theory. And each of us may try to do that on a small scale in our own life. We may try by you know, observing the world and thinking about things and you know, to try to figure out what does my life mean but it's extremely difficult, we would say impossible, to understand the meaning of life in that way. And one could study, you know, all the books in the Library of Congress, and one could do that, you know, over millions of years. Pantastukoti One will never reach even the toenails of the Lord. It's just not possible. Once one is using the wrong method. If we want to find out the meaning of the world, we have to know from the person who designed the world. I mean, it's just... Now that's Anuman. That's just common sense. Like Shiva Prabhupada talks about with a book, if you want to know what a book means... You have to know the. You have to ask the author, "What did you mean?" Isn't it? If someone wants to understand the meaning of something I wrote or something I said, they have to ask me, and then of course they have to believe me. 
So the main way that meaning is transmitted is through sound. And Prabhupada talks about, even materially speaking, that there has to be sound. A, a, a baby, a little baby, is not going to understand, even in an ordinary sense, what things mean without sound. I want to speak when it comes to the spiritual. Now, one could say, well, we understand through our other senses as well. That's true. But in order to properly interpret and understand what our other senses have encountered, we still need sound. Now, spiritual sound, Subdhabrahma, is of a certain quality. And we may ask, uh, you know, the statement that Srila Prabhupada's making here, that uh, chanting Hare Krishna reveals the meaning of everything, both material and spiritual. How does he say it exactly? Um, by vibrating this transcendental sound, the meaning of everything, both material and spiritual, is revealed. So what's the basis of this sort of a broad and fantastic uh, assertion, amazing assertion, that you just chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, and you'll understand the meaning of everything material and spiritual. Well, this assertion comes from the fact that sound is the basis of everything material and spiritual. That sound creates this material world. And such is given not only in the Vedas, which of course give that sound, the pranava, the omkara, as the creator of everything in the world, but such is, is given... This information is given in all the world scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And that God just spoke, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. And by his sound, everything was created. And from the sound comes space. Here we have this relationship between space and sound. And from there comes gases, from there comes fire, radiant energy. From there comes liquids, from there comes solid. And even the false ego, this sense of I and mine and our intelligence and our mind, all of this is coming from sound. Uh, this is nicely explained in many parts of the scriptures. In the 11th canto, it's described how the Lord enters the bottom chakra, the root chakra, the muladhar of Lord Brahma, and travels up through the to the swadhisthana, through the, uh, what's it called? I can't remember. And then up to the Anahata and the Vasudha and the Agya and so forth of Lord Brahma. And when the Lord comes up into the Vasudha chakra of Lord Brahma, then he comes out of the mouth of Lord Brahma as Vedic sounds. And this Vedic sounds then creates the world. So this sound vibration, Krishna is explaining to Uddhava how Krishna is in the heart as the primal sound vibration. And he's moving up through the chakras of Lord Brahma in order to create the world. And in a similar way, each of us is also creating our own little world through our sound, through our thoughts, through our desires, which are all forms of sound. And we have, in one sense, uh, in karmically, in a subtle way, we've created our particular bodies, our particular life through sound. So the essence of everything is sound, that even gross matter, even the most solid, dense matter, is still 95% space in which the little bits of matter, the little bits of the atoms and so forth, are vibrating, and they're making a sound. 
as Srila Prabhupada writes very nicely in the Krishna book in regard to Raslila, that the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. And so because the whole world is full of this sound, and the sound is the Lord himself as Om, and the sound is the Lord himself as his singing, if I connect with that sound, then I will come to the basic strata of everything. I will, I will go back to the foundation of everything. And when I go to the foundation of everything, then I will see how everything makes sense and I will see the meaning of everything. I'm just thinking when I was working on the Learn to Read books, so there were there's 42 uh, reading books and they're each at a different level of difficulty. And the process for figuring out the levels it's kind of complex there's a combination of what sounds you use like do you use e, do you use e do you use i and what sounds are you introducing what spelling combinations are you introducing and then how many syllables of words of the sentence structure how complex the sentence structure is even the size of the font the complexity of ideas and so many things the relationship of the text to the pictures, how much text is on each page. So there were about 15 to 20 different criteria for each level. And that was in terms of, like I said, the phonics, the sounds and the spellings, the, the phonemes and the graphemes, and then in terms of the rest of the structure of the book. And you had to have that basic foundation together before you could write the books. A lot of people don't get that. I, I've run into a lot of, of people in, in the Hare Krishna movement who sit down to write a children's books without any idea of what the, the foundation is. And so they write a book it, that's at one level in terms of the phonemes and another level, level in terms of the sentence structure and another level in terms of the text, illustrations, relationship, and so forth. And the children don't like it this so much <laughs> um, because... You know, part of it is for a five-year-old and part of it is for a nine-year-old and, and they don't, they can't really relate to it. So before you start the books, you have, you have some foundation, you have some idea. How does everything fit together? You know, someone just reading the books doesn't understand what it means. I remember we first, uh, before all the books were done, the devotee I was working with in the UK, Sitaram, said, why don't we print just some of the books that are already ready? as a little taster for Janmastami. So we printed six books. Uh, we ended up revising them before the final publication. But anyways, I was working with a devotee as doing layout, and he decided that not only was he going to do layout, that without asking me, he was going to do editing. And he didn't like some of the word choices that we used, so he substituted other, other words. And thankfully, I, I caught that before it went to print, and I said... You can't use this, this word you've inserted. He said, well, it's, it's a better word. I said it may be a better word in terms of meaning, but it has a, a phoneme graphing structure that we haven't taught yet. It has a, a spelling and a, a sound pattern we haven't taught yet. And so if you insert this word into this level of books, the children won't be able to read this word and it will be confusing for them. It will be discouraging for them. And... You know, he really didn't get that. <laughs> uh, I finally just had to say, look, this is my book, and you've just got to do it the way I want to. 
But because he didn't understand the meaning, he didn't understand the foundation, uh, therefore he wasn't able to figure out what to do. And this is, of course, our problem, because we don't understand the meaning. We're not in touch with this primordial sound. We're not in touch with the, the, strata, the, the total underlying strata, the total underlying foundation of reality. Therefore, we make all kinds of mistakes in our work without realizing it. We think, oh, th- this is, it's a lot better to do it this way, or it's a lot better to do it that way, uh, without understanding uh, what is the pattern, what is the meaning. You know, we, we just don't know. And I've had this uh, had this experience uh, in, in Iskhan with that uh, is kind of politically charged, but that that I might work with a group of people to do some research, and then uh, it said, well, you know, we, we don't want a, a man, we don't want a woman to present this research. We want a man to present the research. And so uh, the the people who are going to receive the research. They engaged some man to present it, but the man only looked it over for ten minutes before presenting it, so the man doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, just can't, an- can't answer questions, can't direct anything, and, and so forth. Whereas the people who know, they- they've sidelined. So this is the same kind of thing. If-, if you don't know the foundation, if you don't know the meaning, if you don't know how things fit together, then you're going to make foolish mistakes. Uh, and you're... And our life is like that. You know, we look at our life, oh, why did I do this? Why did I say that? Why did I go here? Why did I go there? And, and we have all these regrets in our life and all these things that, you know, don't work out for us, that don't bring us happiness or don't bring happiness to anybody else. And we think, well, okay, I'm going to learn individually from my experiences. You know, so I had an experience with Mr. Smith and that experience was no good, so I'm not going to talk to Mr. Smith anymore. All right, and then I should be okay. Or I said this particular thing in this particular way, and it caused me a problem, so I'm going to adjust that particular thing in that particular way. Or, you know, wow, I did this thing, and it worked really well, so I'm just going to repeat that thing uh, over and over again, saying, well, that, that, worked. <laughs> that worked one time, I'm just going to keep repeating it. And so we're, we're working on an ad hoc basis. We're working on a piecemeal basis. Looking at things in isolation from the whole, looking at things in isolation from the pattern uh, without being able to discern the meaning. And sometimes, you know, we happen to be in accord with the meaning of things and we get it right, and other times we're not in accord with the meaning of things and we get it wrong. You know, Krishna says in the mode of ignorance, you always have things backward. What's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And the mode of passion, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. And the mode of goodness, you, you have it right. Um, we see this, this mode of passion very prominent in the world. If we look at, say, various uh, government leaders, political leaders, so they'll be like, okay, I'm against abortion, but I'm for cow killing. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, you know, sometimes you, you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Or, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of protecting the environment, but I'm also in favor of abortion. And what do they say? A broken clock is right twice a day. So, you know, sometimes they get it right, but so many times they get it wrong. And they're, they're not able to really improve anything because they don't know the meaning. And so when we connect with the original sound, we are then connecting with the meaning. And it's interesting that that kind of knowing 
Or Prabhupada says, is revealed. That kind of knowing does not have to do with some sort of studying like we did in school. Okay. This person, this, this, this person, this, this. You know, we're memorizing. We're, it, it's not that kind of knowing. It's just a knowing. You know, it's just a knowing. Uh, like Krishna says, "Te sam sadhi yukam bhajatam kriti purkam vidami budi yogam tam in mamu payanti te te shamevanu kam partam aham aginagjan tamaha nasiyam yet babavo sto ganadi pena bhashrita." You just you know, and I I think we can I can safely say that any of us in this process of bhakti, even for a very short amount of time, we have these kinds of experiences. I mean, and Krishna uses the word prachaksha prachaksha bhagavam dharma that we, we experience it. We're like, oh, oh. We just like get things. It's just revealed because we're in touch with this subject. And that means, of course, Robert's talking about the Hare Krishna mantra, but it also means Shastra. And it's not that we understand the Shastra because we're very erudite and we're intellectuals. And we're scholars, and we can memorize a lot of Sanskrit. And it's not like that. It's not when we're studying the Shastra. It may look like that, but it's not. When we're studying the Shastra, we're again in touch with the foundation. Like the Lord is described as like the warp and the weft of a cloth, the threads that move both ways of cloth. So we're we we know the pattern. We know the meaning. Ah, I get it. And of course, what is the meaning that we know? And this is where Lord Shiva goes to the second part of this verse, where he goes to Namaha Punyaya Lokaya Amusmai Bhuri Varjase. That the ultimate meaning is the supreme abode, the ultimate piety. And not piety in terms of uh, ordinary good karma. You know, like giving in charity, just like Prabhupada writes in his purport in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that if for some reason you can't take up spiritual life, then at least you should give in charity. So we're not talking about that kind of pious activities, you know, planting trees. I mean, that's all good stuff. People should do it. Giving in charity, planting trees, opening schools, and so forth. But we're talking about the being in harmony with this meaning. So when everything that we do is in harmony, that it's not that we just sit down and chant Hare Krishna for a couple hours and we read the Shastra for an hour and, and our lives are out of harmony, but when everything we do, every thought, every feeling, every desire, every action is in harmony with the meaning of the universe, then we live in the highest realm of piety. Piety meaning here uh, integrity which means to be integrated with, to be part of. It's very much connected to the concept of yoga, to be connected with, uh, to be linked to yukta, which is used much, to be linked, to be in harmony. I mean, we can think about a musical performance where the various musicians are playing in harmony. We can think about, you know, a dance where the dancers are dancing in harmony. Sometimes they're perfectly synchronized with one another. Sometimes they're doing different things, but whatever they're doing is harmonious. Right? We can think of a color scheme. In this room I'm in, 
uh, my daughter and my granddaughter were helping pick out colors. So there's, there's actually walls are painted three different colors. And you can, you can see, so behind me you see kind of a deep yellow, and over here is a lighter yellow, and down there at the end of the room, which is kind of dark, it's hard to see, is like a burgundy. And then, of course, the, the ceiling is white. So if you're going to count white as a color and the floor is kind of off-white. So there's, there's four colors. But hopefully they are harmonious. They work together. They're not clashing. Right? Uh, this morning my daughter is preparing to dress the deities at the temple here tomorrow. And the outfit is orange and green, which is a little strange color combination. Huh? Orange and green. Uh, but the particular shades and the way it's done, it, it works. One can get it to be harmonious with one another. And, and we know what it's like when things are not harmonious, when someone's playing an instrument or singing out of tune or out of beat. Right? You know, when that, that one person is just playing the mridanga out of beat or playing the cartels out of beat with everybody else, they're not in sync. Right? Or, you know, you look at some uh, room decoration and it, it's all out of sync. Everything's just mismatching. Right? Or some dancer is completely out of sync, and it's a whoa, gosh, you know, kind of jumps at you. So the material world is the place for the out of sync people. <laughs> it's a place for the people who are out of harmony, who don't pick up the meaning of life. But when you do get into sync like this, you have the ultimate piety. That is the ultimate understanding of piety, because piety and sin in general means inner out of sync. You know. Just like I, I have this, so I, if I'm drinking, I'm drinking this herbal tea and I'm drinking it inside of a cup, if I try to eat the cup instead of drinking the herbal tea, then I'll become quite sick, I'll probably break my teeth and so forth. So I have to put things in my body that are in harmony with my body. Right? So that's piety. Piety is I do things that are in harmony. And sin is I do things that are out of harmony. As soon as I do something that's out of harmony, I get a bad reaction. There's, there's something that comes back. It hits me. I always give the example. I try to walk through a wall instead of a door. You know, so sinful activity is trying to walk through a wall, and pious activity is trying to walk through a door. So the ultimate pious activity is you're not just following the rules of the universe because you want good karma, but you're in harmony with the universe because you're in harmony with the ultimate meaning of the universe. So when one becomes aware of the ultimate meaning of the universe, one then acts in harmony with that awareness. And when one does that, then one is living in the highest realm. Now here it's amsumai, uh, beyond death, and that of course implies that one has gone through the transition called death where the body is finished and the soul goes on to another realm. Uh, but we're also talking about in this life that one will feel that one is living in, this, in a spiritual environment, that one will not feel that one is living in the material world. Because as soon as we're in harmony, there is no material world. The material world is not simply a geographical place. Uh-huh. So, sorry, a state of awareness where one is aware of 
and works properly with the meaning. Just give me a second. Thanks. So the spiritual world also means an awareness that I see this pattern, I see the meaning, I see how everything fits together, and I work with it. And then I'm in spiritual consciousness, and I'm in the spiritual world wherever... I may be in a physical body, and I may be on the earth planet, and so forth, but that's not how I'm experiencing things. Now, it's just really, really sweet here what Prabhupada does in this purport. I mean, Srila Prabhupada's books, Prabhupada says, are his own personal ecstasies. And in many of Srila Prabhupada's purports, he's speaking in a general way about Krishna consciousness and transcendence. And of course, in one sense, his his own personality and his own desires and his own perspective are coming through in every purport. At the same time, there are certain places where Srila Prabhupada really kind of opens the curtains a bit, one could say, and reveals something about his own personal heart. And I see that here, where Srila Prabhupada starts talking about the coward boys. And, you know, it's like, um, what did that have to do with the verse? Our Prabhupada's connection is this word punyaya, or piety, where he talks about that how Supadeva Goswami says that the coward boys had amassed heaps of pious activities in order to associate with the Lord. And again, we want to emphasize these are not, we're not talking about, you know, building a hospital. Like building hospitals are lovely. People should build hospitals. I'm glad somebody builds hospitals. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a good karma. We're not talking about karma kanda. We're talking about bhakti. We're talking about the ultimate piety. And Prabhupada's giving them as an example that the coward boys, by being unlimitedly pious for so many births, were able to attain the supreme destination. But I just thought it was so sweet. You know, Prabhupada brings things. And it's just Lord Shiva, you know. It's Lord Shiva talking about Vishnu to the Puchetas. It's not the context in which Prabhupada's giving this purport. The, the verse is not about Goloka, the verse is not about Krishna's intimate Vrindavan Lila, but Prabhupada's bringing it in anyway. Um, you see that all over the place. Uh, so many places, as we're studying the Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada's talking about Krishna's intimate associates in Vrindavan. Um, it, it's just everywhere. So it's just kind of charming to get this glimpse, glimpse into Srila Prabhupada and Prabhupada talking about uh, Vrindavan. So what do we do on the basis of this verse? Well, that's pretty simple. We chant Hare Krishna. (laughs) Um, We chant Hare Krishna not as a ritual and not as something superficial and not as our payment for getting prasadam, but we chant Hare Krishna in order to understand the meaning and in order then, once we've understood the meaning, to work with the meaning. And what is the meaning? (laughs) I feel like I've been kind of dancing around it the whole class. What is the meaning? The meaning is love, and love demonstrated by service, or as Prabhupada would translate it, devotional service. So the meaning of everything is devotion. The reason anything exists is love and devotion, and the joy that comes from love and devotion. And that love and devotion is meant to be exhibited by a service. That is the meaning of everything. 
that is why anything exists, that's why anything happens the way it happens, that is how we're meant to respond properly, that is how we're meant to be in harmony. The Hare Krishna mantra is a, is a supreme uh, love song between Hare and Krishna and Hare and Ram. That's what it is. It's a song of supreme transcendent love. And so when we chant that, and we said, as we said in the beginning, Prabhupada said the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. And Prabhupada says that in relation to Ras Lila. So that, that's the meaning. The meaning is that it's love, and the meaning is that it's a song, and it's service, and it's a dance. That, that's the meaning. And it's not some sentimental, oh, it's about loving my puppy dog. But it's about actual love of God that then expands, expands, expands like a, a stone thrown in a lake where it expands with concentric circles so that when we love God, yeah, we will love the dogs and the trees and the, everybody. And then everything is in harmony with that meaning. And then everything in our life is satisfying. I know externally it may seem like certain things in our life are blessings and certain things in our life are difficulty. But we'll feel that everything is in harmony when we're in touch with that foundation of sound. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions. And then you very briefly said, and you moved on, that uh, we're sort of like that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started going into that, and um, yeah, it's so true that how blind we are—not just, not just um, conceptually in terms of you know, Om Ajnana so not, not that we're just philosophically blind—but the, the, the fact that we can't see Krishna, who's you know, everywhere. everywhere sitting right next to us, within our heart, within every atom, between every atom. And I started thinking about all of our senses, that we're just limited to this, you know, a certain frequency of light, a certain, um, a, a certain frequency wave by a certain frequency of sound that we can hear, yes. 20 to 20,000 cycles per second, that we really are like Helen Keller. We are. And then somehow hearing oh, no, shut the mind. I don't hear anything. Yeah. <laughs> Shabda Mara really wakes us up and, and gives us all of our senses become alive. Yes. Spiritual senses. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, it's interesting in that regard, like people who've had out-of-body experiences, one of the things that they will say is that all of a sudden they, they can see 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, when, and that's just in a subtle body. And they can see, you know, that all of a sudden their senses have become so much less impeded. Uh, what to speak of the spiritual senses. You know, I think of this body, there's that uh, picture that's become very, very uh, much distributed in America, Bernie Sanders sitting at the inauguration, you know, with his arms crossed. And he's wearing these gargantuan mittens, right? Like he's wearing mittens that are, are at least twice the length of his hands. Uh, what are you going to do with mittens like that? You know, his, his famous mittens. I mean, they're going to keep your hands warm, but you're not going to be able to do anything with them. You're not going to be able to perceive the world with them. So our whole gross body is like that. It's like this humongous, fluffy mitten that's just clamped over our senses, giving us this little, teeny, teeny, tiny 
range of what we can see and hear and taste and smell and so forth. I mean, Prabhupada says in the higher planets they have sense enjoyment that's thousands of times greater than ours. Well, what does that tell us? <laughs> you know, that tells us that our senses are limited as to what they can perceive, that there's thousands of more tastes and thousands of more smells and thousands of more colors and thousands of more touch sensations than we're able to experience in these bodies. And then what to speak of the spiritual? Yeah, we're, we really can't see or hear or taste or smell or touch much of anything. Yeah. Right. Well, we can't anyways. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it's actually quite heavy how restricted we are. Yeah, without an interpreter, you know, the guru, obviously, Annie Sullivan is was was literally Helen Keller's guru. Without a guru, you know, mm. you can't do anything. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. I have a question. Um, you know, um, that was a nice point about harmony. Mm. And um, so it's pretty easy to understand the spiritual harmony or, you know, environment. But as far as material harmony, wouldn't you say that's totally relevant? You know, sometimes we're driving and uh, we stop at a red light and the car next to us is blaring this cacophonous <laughs> music. Oh, definitely. How can they like that? But to them, that's harmony. They like that, according to the modes of nature, right? Yes. Well, I've talked before about this, that um, it was actually the Christian writer C.S. Lewis who said that in heaven there's either silence or music, and in hell there's noise. So, you know, when... Uh, when people are very much in tamagun, when they're in the deepest level of tamagun, they actually hate harmony. They're, they want chaos. They want discordance. I mean, if you think of all crime, all crime is discordance. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's messing up the structure and the fiber all disease is discordance. You know, and those who are very, very much in ignorance, they are trying to enjoy some pleasure out of discordance, which is why Krishna says that in the mode of ignorance there's actually no pleasure at all. I mean, the kind of pleasure that exists in the mode of ignorance is this, I'm a rebel. I'm getting away with something. I'm breaking the rules. Think about this. I'm breaking the rules. You're, you're trying to break the thread. So, the, you know, the pleasure is some sense of autonomy and some sense of power. But that's not pleasure. I mean, real pleasure includes autonomy and power, of course. When we're... Uh, when we're serving Krishna, we have a sense of uh, being autonomous, of being our own individual self, and we have a sense of great power. But looking for autonomy and power separately doesn't give any pleasure at all. In the mode of, of 
passion. There's some sense of pleasure in the beginning, and it's mixed happiness and distress. Because in the mode of passion, sometimes you're in harmony and sometimes you're not. So at least there's some here and there. And in the mode of goodness, you're basically in harmony. But yeah, in the mode of ignorance, people are intentionally breaking the harmony. Intentionally. And then, of course, they're more and 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 more miserable. And because we're pleasure-seeking by nature, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not a sustainable life for someone in the mode of ignorance. And often they try to go deeper and deeper and deeper into ignorance in order to hope that they're going to get some kind of happiness. Well, maybe if I'm more discordant, you know, then I'll be able to... It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. This is spiraling. Good point. Thank you. I have a question. Yes, my love. Um... You were mentioning that our capacity, our sense perception is very limited. Yeah. And then, still, that's all we have. Uh, I thought, well, hopefully it might be like Hanuman and the squirrel or the spider. So if one uses whatever one has, trying to pay attention to the holy name or doing our service, what else can we do beyond that, besides that? Well, as, as Prabhupada would say, I think quoting from Srila Bhakti Sananta, that we don't try to see God, we try to act in such a way that he will see us. So by doing these puny, insufficient attempts, Krishna becomes pleased and he reveals. Okay. But if we don't do any puny, insufficient attempts, why should he reveal? So it's not that our puny, insufficient attempts are irrelevant. It's not that we do nothing and we just hope that Krishna reveals someday. But our puny, insufficient attempts are ways of saying, I, I really would like you to reveal and I'll use it properly. I'll use your revelation properly. Okay, I think it's time to end. Thank you very much. Shila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Yeah.